Happy Family Day. <laughs> How many, yeah, what's with the suit and tie? You'll see in a minute. How many of you have ever taken dance lessons? Yes? Okay. This is for the rest of you. It's Valentine's weekend. I wanted to do something romantic. I'm going to teach you how to dance. You should probably know I didn't grow up dancing. Traditional Baptist family. I don't know if you know that about Canadian Baptists, Alex, Sarah, but Canadian Baptists, we don't dance. We don't dance anywhere near as well as Brazilian Baptists. In fact, in our family, it wasn't just about obedience. It was genetics. It's not just that we didn't dance. We couldn't dance. <laughs> in fact, I don't remember dancing at all until I moved to Hamilton and got married and trained to be a pastor. And then once I was a pastor, I started dancing. <laughs> and the reason I started dancing has everything to do with a beautiful young blonde-haired woman who agreed to marry me. A bad Baptist, a great dancer. <laughs> so here's what I did to get ready for today. I read through one of those instructional books about dancing. You know the ones that come with a little diagram about where to put your feet? So I'm going to teach you how to waltz. Watch very carefully because I think I can only do this one time. All right. We lead with our left. Right? We swipe with our right. We close with our left. Back with our right. Swipe with our left. Close with our right. One, two, three. One, two, three. Now, that's the basic. That's the box step. You can add all kinds of fancy steps, the flips and the turns and the dips and the whirls, but you master the box step and you've mastered the waltz. Now, what do you think of my waltz? What was it missing? I mean, besides a partner, what was it missing? Music, that too. Rhythm. Yeah, come on. Be honest. Grace. Yeah, poise, beauty, but you wonder, I mean, how could that be? After all, I got the book, I studied the book, I read the book, I learned from the book. You can be a fantastic choreographer, but I still dance like a Baptist. <laughs> <clears throat> Folks, here's the deal. You can, you can know the book, and I hope you do. You can do the book, and I hope you do that as well. But without grace, there's not much beauty to life. I've studied the book. Uh, I do the book. Uh, sometimes my life has a little bit of grace. Sometimes I'm just a work in progress, even, even on the dance floor. <laughs> At one point in my life, uh, somebody invited me into her life, and, and when she takes me onto the dance floor, whatever grace she has, has a way of spilling over onto me. I let her lead. I mean, just no, no worries about that. All I'm thinking is, please, God, please let me get through this without embarrassing myself. And all of that box step, it, it just boils down to clutch and rotate and hope, and hope that enough grace spills over onto me. Now, I say all of this 
because sometimes religious people have this problem. We can produce people who know the book and who do the book, but there's no grace. And sometimes we end up producing followers of the rules instead of followers of Jesus. And sometimes Christians become known as people who are mechanical and unfeeling and and joyless and lifeless, fearful, even judgmental. They're known more for what they're against than for what they're for. And then we wonder, why don't other people want to come to church and be with us? Jesus was really aware, I think, of this problem with human religion. And it gets to a question that really haunts the human race. It's one of the questions that's at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, for the past few weeks, we've been unpacking the sermon. And we said it begins with this question of, what does it mean to have the good life? How blessed are you, Jesus says. This is what the good life is. But then it transitions to the question that's going to preoccupy us for the next few months. Who is a good person? What does it mean to be a good person? You can never really get away from that question. So starting next week, as we work through this greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to learn from Jesus about how to deal with a whole host of human problems, how to deal with our anger, how do we deal with our sexuality, how do we deal with language, so we use language well, how do we deal with our relationships. And Jesus is about to prepare us for all of that by getting really clear in the text we're about to read about what it means to be a good person. So with that in mind, I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 in verse 17 as we continue to make our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, Not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And here's the climax. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And you could say that the rest of Matthew chapter 5, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, is about to unpack that last statement. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I have to tell you that When I first encountered those words, they struck me and filled me with fear. They were bad news. I knew enough about the Pharisees to know that that they were exemplary in their religious life. They were exemplary in their adherence to the the minutiae of the law. They would fast twice a week. They would memorize huge swaths of the Bible. They would never look the wrong way at a woman. They had set the bar really high. And I read the verse and thought, unless I can get over an even higher bar, there's no chance for me. But what if that's not really what Jesus is saying? 
What if he's not saying that these religious leaders, they've got lots of righteousness, you need even more than they have. What if he's saying is that that kind of righteousness isn't the right kind at all? Not the real kind. You need to surpass all of that. Remember, the, the way that he described the religious leaders of his day got him in tremendous difficulty. He would use language like this. If you want to flip ahead to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, verse 25. <clears throat> he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. <coughs> you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And I guarantee you, language like this was not making him any friends. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Pretty severe. Jesus is getting at that question. What does it mean to be a good person? And the religious leaders of his day defined a good person in terms of external compliance with the rules. (coughs) They defined a good person as somebody who does the right things, avoids doing the wrong things, somebody who follows the rules. St. Augustine, centuries later, had a beautiful phrase for this. He talked about what he called the glittering vices. Glittering vice is something that looks like a virtue, but it makes me proud and arrogant and unloving, and really what it's doing is shriveling my soul. (coughs) I got the corona. Sorry. (laughs) No, don't, don't joke about that. Winston Churchill from England uh, had a political rival. His name was Stafford Cripps. He was brilliant, another member of parliament, a really austere character, kind of self-righteous, disapproving of others. He's what Mark Twain used to call a good man in the worst sense of the word. (laughs) Uh, His one known vice is that he loved to smoke cigars. And eventually he gave up even that. And when Winston Churchill heard that, he said, it's too bad those cigars, they were the last contact he had with humanity. (laughs) There are a lot of things that are good in themselves that run the risk of becoming glittering vices. I can believe correct doctrine. I can hold the right (coughs) political ideology. My sexuality can be right. I can have a great work ethic. I can have a glittering family. I can do what Jesus said, but it's possible to focus so much on doing the right things that you fail to become the right kind of person. I wonder, do you have any glittering vices? I know that I do. Here's the thing. Focus on external compliance neglects the condition of the heart, of the, of the inner life. 
time for another little survey. Have you ever been pulled over by the police? Okay. <laughs> Let's work on honesty. Have you ever been pulled over by the police? There we go. Moving violation, speeding, rolling through a stop sign. Uh, imagine the next time it happens. There may be a next time. Uh, you try this. You say, officer, you have to understand, that's just not like me. I don't have a grudging, aggressive spirit. I'm all about shalom. I try and live my life in, in joyful, wholehearted submission to God. See how that works. <laughs> and it won't, because our legal authority deals entirely with behavioral compliance. You follow the rules, or if you don't, you meet the law. What God wants is not just rule followers, but transformed followers. We talked about it last week. It's, it's inside-out goodness. It's inner change. Anytime you're reading the Bible and you see Jesus talking about righteousness, the righteousness of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, you have to kind of take that word and, and put it inside quotations. Their rule-following orientation led them to focus entirely on their outward actions while their inner thoughts and desires remained corrupt. It's the problem that we encounter with this wrong-hearted righteousness. We can be guilty of it. And what happens is it, it generates tremendous social pressure that we place on others. We're trying so hard to follow the rules. You need to follow the rules too. Follow our rules. We become deeply self-conscious of how much we're giving up, of how hard we're trying, we're grinding it out. We demand that other people see it, that they be impressed with us, that they follow our lead. And we resent it. We resent them when we don't see them giving up the things that we had to give up. That's what religion can do. And one of the tragic results is that the rich, beautiful language of righteousness develops a bad name in the world. In our culture, we have this problem, right? The New Testament uses all of these words, attractive words, to describe goodness. And all of them have come to feel antiquated, puritanical, outmoded, hypocritical, judgmental. Imagine you're going on a blind date. You ask the person who sets you up, what's she like? And your friend uses these words to describe her. Oh, she's, um, she's really sanctified. She's holy. Boy, she, I'd say she's righteous. Uh, you mean a righteous babe? No, 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 no. Righteous. Most people aren't drawn to those kinds of words. Jesus is committed to something new. A new kind of righteousness. Some people, when they heard him talk, thought that what he meant was flaunting the rules. Just disobey them. It doesn't really matter. But it wasn't that. You don't want that. I don't want that. We think sometimes we want it, but you don't. You don't want to marry a rule breaker. You don't want to raise little rule breakers. You don't want to work for a rule breaker. The last words you hear from a surgeon as you're being rolled into the operating suite are, <coughs> I wish I hadn't broken all the rules and cheated and lied my way through medical school. You... Rule breaking isn't the way to go. It's why Jesus clarifies his point. He says in verse 17, the beginning of the section, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. He says that because he knows he's being critiqued 
by the Pharisees, by the leaders, who thought he was just trying to jettison the whole thing. That's not the way to live. It's not about cutting corners and taking shortcuts and following our bliss. That's not what grace is about. Listen to what he says. He puts a sharp point on it. In verse 18, not even the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will disappear from the law. The law, rightly understood, is the greatest gift that God has given to the human race outside of Jesus Himself. You need to know that. And the word righteousness is a wonderful word that needs to be resuscitated. You know, centuries before Jesus lived and taught, there was another great moral teacher. It was Plato who wrote in the Republic about what it meant to do the right thing, to be good. (coughs) And the old word that he used to describe that condition was the word dikaiosune. Say that with me. Dikaya sune. You're never going to have to say it again. So say it one more time. Dikaya sune. Now all of the teaching of the Old Testament, of the, of the prophets, about, of the lawgivers, about God's intent for human beings, about goodness and righteousness and shalom, peace, it all got translated when Jesus gives this new teaching And it all gets embedded in a single word. Guess which word? Dikaya sune. The word righteousness. And really what's happening is these two great streams of moral reflection in the ancient world come together. Jesus fuses them together and says that to be a truly good person in and with God is the most important thing that you do. God's primary calling in your life is not what you do for a living. It's who you're becoming as a human being. Righteousness. And the law rightly understood. You'll find this in your notes. It's a quote, but I couldn't remember where I was quoting it from. So it's there in your notes. The the law rightly understood and fulfilled is the greatest gift that God gave the human race outside of Himself. The law of good, rightly understood, humbly studied, practiced through the power of the Spirit, is a gift of God to the human race. And it's sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. It just is. It still is. Not about following rules, about following Jesus. But also not about breaking and flaunting the rules. It's about following Jesus. And all of this comes into sharp focus with the, what you could say really is the clarion call of the Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus issues in chapter 6, in verse 33. And you may not know the reference, but you know the verse. Seek first the kingdom of God and His... Now, if you're going to seek the kingdom, there could be no other word to describe what follows than that. Righteousness. The two go together. Righteousness is simply what your life looks like when you're living in the reality of the kingdom of God because the goal of your life isn't just rule following. It's not just sin avoidance. It's fullness of life. That's what it means to live in the kingdom. Here's an illustration. Imagine you had a big field and you wanted it to look like the perfect suburban lawn, the envy of all your neighbors. Now, you probably shouldn't be trying to cultivate envy, but... What do you do? I mean, the perennial problem with suburban lawns is 
weeds, right? So you could commit to spending endless hours on your knees with that dandy little fork tool that dig them out one at a time. But there's another way to deal with weeds, and that's to strangle them at the source. And you do that by planting and cultivating grass that is beautiful and lush and you know, Kentucky bluegrass. And the more healthy grass there is, the harder it is for weeds to feed their way through. In other words, you can avoid sin by trying to avoid sin. And most people think that's a description of religion. Or you can do it by trying to pursue life. Remember, Jesus didn't say, I've come so that you might avoid sin and avoid it with gritted teeth. No, He said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Abundance just running out of your ears. And the failure to do that, the failure to sustain a deeply satisfying life, will always result in the temptation to look elsewhere for joy and and for meaning. The way to fulfill the law is to live out of the abundance of the kingdom with the the presence of Jesus who died on the cross to to bring us forgiveness and rose again to give us hope. And, And I guess if I wanted to challenge you with something this week, it would be this. Don't be a rule follower. Now that's a dangerous thing to say on its own. Promote anarchy. Don't be a rule follower. Don't, don't be a rule breaker either. But live out of the abundance of the kingdom and practice what Jesus was getting at, which is a kind of surpassing goodness. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. Surpassing goodness. Not just outward compliance but out of the abundance of who God is, His presence, His power, His strength, let some of that flow out of you into the lives of others. What could that look like? This week when you're at home, instead of doing the bare minimum that you can get away with in in order to avoid trouble with your spouse or with your parents or your roommate, what would it look like to step into the kingdom at home? to reflect the values of abundance in your household? Some of you, when's the last time you picked up the vacuum cleaner? Do you even know where it is? Ah, yeah. Live in the abundance of the kingdom. When you're at work this week, whether you're paid or you're a volunteer, you don't just follow the rules. For so many people, even many Christians, they're just punching a clock. They're just following the rules. What's the least that I need to do to get through the day, to get through the week, to earn my paycheck? Not you, though. This week. What would it mean to step into the kingdom to offer surpassing goodness? Here's how the Apostle Paul describes it. In Colossians 3, in verse 23, he says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. That's surpassing goodness. As if you're working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Jesus Christ whom you are serving. Martin Luther King Jr., he said in one of his sermons, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets the same way that Michelangelo painted 
or Beethoven composed, or Shakespeare wrote poetry, he should sweep streets so well that the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job abundantly well. Whatever it is you're doing, entering data, teaching students, selling products, caring for patients, writing code, whatever it is, Do it with surpassing goodness. God, how can you help me today? How can we partner together in the workplace to solve problems, to encourage my coworkers, so that people will know that Jesus is more than just a name that's used on Sundays by people who hide out in buildings. Followers of Jesus ought to be the greatest workers around because they're offering surpassing goodness. Here's the last thought. This week when you talk to somebody, don't just be on autopilot. You find that you do this, you drift into that mode, you just give the socially acceptable words, you answer questions they didn't ask, you find yourself saying, I'm fine, they didn't even ask, how are you? You just expected that they were going to say that, right? Speak to them with surpassing goodness. Encourage them. Love them. It doesn't have to be perfect. They'll understand your heart. And remember, as a follower of Jesus, the aim is not just behavior modification. Jesus put it like this in Luke 6, in verse 45. He said that good people will bring good things out of the goodness that's stored up in their hearts. But evil people... They bring evil things out of the evil stored in their hearts. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Their aim can't just be to say good things and avoid saying bad things. The aim is to have God change the automatic flow of thoughts and desires that are coming from inside so that your desire is to be truthful and humble and generous hopeful and brave. How do I pursue all of this? How, how is it that I store up good things? I'm just going to give you one suggestion and it's going to sound like a very antiquated suggestion, but not all things old should be discarded. One of the ways that you can aim at changing the automatic flow of thoughts in your mind is to memorize Scripture so that you put God-breathed words in your mind in a way that is always present. Now realize the human condition can turn even that into one of those glittering vices where I compare how I'm doing with other people. Uh, I can think of it as a kind of spiritual merit badge or turn it into a competition. When I was a kid growing up in Sunday school, scripture memorization was always a competition. I understand there's motivation there, but for every verse that we memorize, we get a prize or a sticker or pencil or some candy, and I was pretty good at it. But there was a little girl in my class, Shauna was her name, and she was better. I mean, she had a mind like a steel trap. When it went in there, it was caught. And she just, she always was able to remember more. So I killed her. Yeah. Yeah. I killed her just a little bit in my heart. 
And we do that, don't we? Just a little bit. In fact, that's where we're going next week. When we talk about anger and killing in the Sermon on the Mount. It is arguably the biggest problem in the world. It is the root of all adversity and war. It may be the biggest problem in human life, but, but if there's a way to circumvent that, if I can get God's Word into the mix and interrupt the flow of those thoughts without being proud or self-righteous, then I can achieve something surpassing. It's a means to an end. Uh, the end is a, is a changed heart. I want to be able to think those glorious thoughts so that when I'm standing in a checkout line at Costco, don't go to the Costco at the 403 in Dundas. The checkout lines are always long. And, you're stand, and I watch people, and they're frustrated, and they're angry, and why don't they have more clerks? And, and so what they do, they all do the same thing. They reach for their phone, and they're just passing time in their frustration, waiting for their turn. How about this? Instead of frustration, allow the words of God to wash over your mind. The words that you have committed there, that are stored there, that are your constant companion. When you wake up in the middle of the night, filled with angst and you don't even know what it's about, allow those words to come gushing forward. God can use that to change you from the inside out. This week, if you're, if you're driving a car, if you're lucky enough to have a car, you have all the time in the kingdom. You can slow down. You can be generous with your car. Come on in in front of me. It's okay. I know there's not space. I'll make some space. Come on in. You can pray a scripture for them. Yeah. Love your enemies. Come on in. It's an act of kingdom generosity. This week you can offer some surpassing goodness with your money. Some time ago I confessed to one of my colleagues how much I was struggling with the whole benevolence thing in my life. And I found myself getting irritated by the constant stream of people coming into my life asking for money. And so I asked this colleague, I said, you know, what do I do? And very wisely said, when somebody asks if you have it, you should give. I know that's not the ultimate answer to poverty. It's not a systemic solution. But it will help your own heart. And maybe it's not up to you to decide whether they will use it well. My goodness, a lot of times I don't use money well. Just give, he said. If you're going to err, err on the side of generosity. He said he started doing that. Somebody would ask him and he'd, just, he'd pull a bill out of his wallet. And then God started to say, not that one, give the big bill. <laughs> and he did. And, and he said that he felt God begin to bless him. And he didn't just mean financially, though his finances actually took an upturn either. I, I don't want to mention that because then somebody's going to say, well, that's a get-rich scheme. Give more, get more. Not that. It's a heart change scheme. There's a better way of living. I love the way that Jesus put it one time. And we're going to close with this scripture because it's not well known. It's not one that you've likely seen before or don't remember. But it's from the Gospel of Luke. 
in chapter 7. This is Jesus speaking. I want you to picture this image. He says, to what shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to each other, saying, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. And we sang a dirge and you did not cry. Can you hear it? The sound of Jesus on the flute, our great Pied Piper, inviting you to the surpassing righteousness and joy, the overflowing abundance of of God's goodness and generosity. This week, I hope you do know the book. I hope you read it. I hope you love it. I hope you apply it, but don't stop there. You can step into the kingdom, and when you do, step out with just a little bit of pizzazz and enjoy the dance. Let me pray for all of us. God, into our lives, you send opportunities. Each day, throughout the day, and in many moments, we're at a crossroad where we can choose a way that will expand the life and and the soul and the value of our fellow human beings. Or we can... We can choose a path that will ignore it or even diminish it. God, we choose life. We choose abundant life. We choose kingdom life. We choose it in your name because we want people to know your name. We want people in every facet of our world, of our family, of our school, of our workplace, to know the name of Jesus, not just as a bumper sticker or a curse word, but as a source of joy and goodness and blessing. And God, would you take your people and transform them. We want to be able to radiate that into the world. We want it to feel true. So would you work down several layers into our lives and affect real change of heart. There is no scarcity in you, Lord. We choose life. Life in all of its abundance. And we choose it in Jesus' name. Amen.